0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Stefan Noe of the Sporting News and. We have a really fun conversation, primarily about the young players that are exciting us most around the league. A lot of talk about Shea Gildas-Alexander, Desmond Bain, plenty of others. But then we get into his recent pieces on Ben Simmons and that remarkable Alabama-Minnesota college game that we're getting up on the five-year anniversary. Stefan did a really cool piece Oral history on that. So we talk about that a little bit towards the end. Episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Episode runs about 45 minutes, and I think there's a lot of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Hey, thank you for having me, Danny. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You and I both share a similar passion at the beginning of the season for kind of seeing how players and teams have changed. And oftentimes it's a lot more fun when they're exceeding expectations. And so I think we'll spend more of our time in that direction. And the, the first guy I thought, of, you've tweeted about it, I've been thinking about it a lot, is, is Shay Gildress Alexander. And my, I, I think it's the, the hardest leap to make and not being definitive that he's done it so far, but preliminary signs are exceedingly good that is that leap into like star all nba from something below that and shea gilders alexander so far this year on a team that still has some challenging offensive talent particularly when it comes to shooting has been just so impressive
1: yeah i was uh i was i'm in a group dm with a bunch of media people on twitter and i posed the question to them of uh how well has shea played like what a top blank player, would you place him in? I think he's been a top ten player up to this point. That's not saying that he will continue this pace necessarily, although I think it's quite possible. Uh, I'm curious to hear what you, where you would put him, though, Danny.
0: Top six. I think wow. that's about. I think that's about where I'd be right now. And I, he's been fantastic. And I mean, if I'm not using this as gospel, nothing is. But he's fourth in EPM right now. And the the Thunder. This is one that I like to use. The Thunder being they have about a 115 off offensive rating, clean the glass version when Gildas Alexander's on the floor. And when you consider the surrounding talent and the availability of that surrounding talent, they've had a ton of guys in and out over the course of it. And I mean, Shay, if you, you know, like another way of putting it, and you, you know, I love the efficiency numbers. 63% true shooting on 33 usage. Like that is bananas. Like that's and he's and he's doing it in mostly sustainable ways. Gotten better shooting twos, making more threes than most of his years. So I mean, and he's gotten better defensively. Like I don't I don't think that's the part that I think is actually gonna regress a little bit. Like EPM thinks he's ninety fourth percentile on defense. No, pumping those brakes, pumping those <laughs> brakes, but. The idea that Gildas Alexander has been one of the 10 best offensive players, five best offensive players in the league so far, totally plausible to me.
1: He's such a weird player. I mean, you mentioned his uh, effective field goal percentage, true shooting percentage, and uh, for people who aren't super familiar with his game, that might not be that surprising, but usually... These guys who have these really high shooting percentages are specialists. You know, they're the rim-running centers. They're guys that shoot a lot of threes. Shade does not, as you mentioned, he doesn't shoot that many threes. He shoots like a lot of mid-range shots. Uh, and for him to have these kind of numbers on such high usage, I mean, uh, unless you are super familiar with how these statistics work, you don't realize how amazingly impressive that is. And if you if you're not familiar with those types of stats, just his raw box score stats: thirty-one point five points per game. That's tied with. St- Steph Curry for fifth in the league, five point eight assists, four point four rebounds. I mean, he's he's just been amazing. Uh, I think it's been said a lot that the um, the the basis for that offense is how good he is at driving. He's leading the league in drives for the third consecutive year. And again, like that's one statistic that doesn't really tell the whole story because you mentioned it a little bit when you were um, bringing the topic up, but the Thunder have maybe the worst spacing in the league. I mean, they're 25th and 3-point percentage. Lou Dort is taking the most attempts on the team. He's shooting 27%. He plays a ton with Josh Giddy, who's only shooting 31.6% from 3. So the spacing on that team, I mean, the gaps, the driving gaps that he gets through are so so narrow. He's going through walls of guys, especially in transition where his driving is extremely effective teams are using the same kind of defensive strategy they use on Giannis where they're just trying to build a wall in transition and he gets right by it I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't know how he does it because when you slow these plays down it looks like there's no way he can get through and he, he just slithers through it's it's really an amazing gift to watch
0: I love that you brought up the th- the three-point frequency because another way of kind of thinking about the bizarreness of what Shea Gildas Alexander is doing is you think about the highest value Like, depending on, and of course, it depends on the player, different things that, that, a a way that player can be efficient. So one of them is, like, dunks. And Shea Gildas-Alexander, because dunks are the most efficient shot in basketball, Shea Gildas-Alexander on the season has seven. So not a whole lot of dunks, you know, he has the ball in his hands, he's scored already on the season, 410 points, a whopping... 13 of those, or 14 of those, sorry, I can do math, are on dunks. Yeah, she said, you know, not, not taking many threes. He's only attempting 2.8 threes per game making 38% of them, which I expect a little regression to mean there is career 35% shooter, but does have some better years in there. So this is getting to the free throw line. And as we mentioned, the spacing that makes that really difficult. This is making those twos. And the and it, it's it's been impressive because also like Shea's done it against some really good defenses. This isn't just like, oh, I'm beating up on the also-rans and everything else in the league. And we talked about the context of the challenging situation. And that's really what makes his start to the season so strong is that you have these twin forces in a lot of circumstances, like when a player is going out of his mind at the beginning of the season. So you go, okay, how much of this is real? And is there any reason to believe that certain parts of this could get better, could get easier for him? And with Gildas Alexander, it's like, yeah, I, I think the three-point shooting can tone down a little bit. The two-pointers, this is incredible for anyone when you consider the difficulty of his attempts. But the surrounding talent offensively can get so much better that you could that you can make an argument, not that this is necessarily going to continue to this volume. I mean, we just talked about where he places within the league so far. But the idea that, oh, you know, at age 24, this is a guy who could be a force in the league for years to come.
1: Yeah, and I want to go back to something that you brought up earlier where you mentioned his defensive EPM is superb and how that's probably going to go down. I do agree with you there, but um, I do think that it's important to address how much better his defense has gotten. Because- yes, when he was a rookie with the Clippers, I mean, he came into the league and he was pretty good for a rookie. And subsequently, like in the last couple of years with the Thunder, he was a solidly negative defender. I think a lot of that was tied to effort. And, you know, Mark dagnolf has even said this season that that uptick in his defense is largely effort driven and he's way more locked in. I mean, he has great, great tools. He's got this 6'11 and a half wingspan. So I was watching him guarding uh, Jaden Ivey against the Pistons the other night and and he, I mean, just his tools, like he's able to stay in front of him, but even when Ivy could get past him a little bit, that wingspan allows him to make up so much ground. And he's also gotten a ton of steals with, um, you know, this signature Rondo play where a guy gets past him and he just pokes the ball out from behind. So I, I do think that a lot of that stuff defensively, especially if he plays on uh, better teams, like the Thunder have been better this year. I think that's definitely some of the impetus there. I think it is sustainable and we can see this two-way force that i mean there's there's really no reason why Shea can't be a, a multi-time all nba player you know going into his 20s here
0: what i think back to is that series against the Rockets so at the year after his rookie year with the Clippers Shea gets traded to OKC in the Paul George deal and gets thrust into a very you know like we had these really high expectations for him but he gets thrust into this weird role on on the Clippers or sorry on the Thunder where they have like a bunch of other creators and so he's playing primarily off the ball and he's defending kind of whoever's left and he was bad defensively in that series against the Rockets that was kind of when a lot of people grew to really appreciate Lou Dort because he was defending James Harden so well and then had a couple of years where he was just, you know, below average to significantly worse than that. And as you mentioned, the steals are there and like again small small sample size here 63 possessions but synergy has it that opponents when he's defending the the primary ball handler and pick when he's defending the pick and roll ball handler they're scoring about a half a (laughs) point per possession i don't expect that to continue that is absolutely ludicrous but that shows and and the uh the turnover rate is is about 15 percent which is really good and and like his this is the highest steal rate of of shay gildress alexander's career and so again the truth might lie below the current level but the the idea that he will stay a huge negative forever I think that's kind of going by the wayside which honestly is all you really need and like there's this idea that has happened, I mean, the template to some extent for this could be somebody like Devin Booker, where Devin Booker was a bad defender early in his career. He got stronger, he worked harder, and he got better. And so I think some of the praise that has been heaped on Devin Booker defensively has gotten, you know, the pendulum has swung too far the other way at times for him, but he has become a clearly competent part of a very good defense. And if Shea can get to that point where I think he's already there, then that honestly for a guard is all you really need.
1: Yeah, I think he's going to be a much better defender than booker uh you know my brain is always going back to bulls topics so the analogy i would make too is zach levine you know levine was probably the worst defender at his position on these really bad timberwolves and bulls teams once the bulls start to get better i think now he's maybe like 30th 40th percentile defender which is still you know not great but it's not to the point where it's damaging the entire team defense so i think Shea is already better than levine already better than booker and he can be like a, a significant positive defender here it's just like it's hard to judge these guys defense when they're just playing on completely horrendous teams and and we're finally seeing you know what Shea can do with a little bit better squad
0: on that note i, I think it's good for kind of listeners the general threshold that i use especially and playoffs we'll see if that's in the cards for okc a little bit later but the the basic threshold that you're looking at for these players and you know trey young has often fallen on the wrong side of this is, are you going to get targeted? Are you going to hold up against legitimately good teams? Ideally, we're talking, I think, second round of the playoffs and further. But, you know, if you can't do it in the first round, that's a problem too. And I think Gildas Alexander has gotten to the point now where that isn't as much, you know, it isn't as much of a concern. And also, like... He's so good offensively that you can, and the Thunder fans are more familiar with this than arguably any other fan base in the league, if somebody is good enough offensively, then you can, if you need to, you can put some good defenders and not nuke your offense. That doesn't mean, you know, you're going to get Andre Robertson 2.0 out there, but those sorts of, you, you get a little bit more latitude with a guy like Shea, even though I would love to see them go more aggressively for spacing, of course.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. And I mean, the thing about Shea is just that he's a really, really unique player and he's hard to even explain in a podcast form. I just, I strongly encourage people to just watch, like even if you just watch one of his games, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. And I know the Thunder have been a pretty tough watch in previous years, but they're a fun team this year. I mean, they're scoring the ball a lot. They're playing really hard. They have some interesting young players. So just watch Shea and be like, wow, this guy does not play like any other player in the league.
0: For sure. And whether you want to go back to a previous game at some point, like I mean, the there's plenty of wildness in that Knicks game that you can appreciate. I don't think of that as like a definitive Shea performance, though. He did have good numbers. I it, it, that could be a good one to go through, also just just the popcorn nature of it. Um, but I mean, he dropped thirty-seven on the Celtics recently, thirty-nine on the Bucks. Like these are I think that was the Bucks without Giannis if memory serves. Um yeah, Giannis didn't play in that game. But yeah, he's he's been great. And somebody else who unfortunately is now gonna not play for a few weeks because he's injured is Desmond Bain. And we got asked Nate and I are doing the NBA strategy stream for League Pass and we got asked a question during the Grizzlies Celtics broadcast about like kind of Desmond Bain's ascension this year and basically kind of like where is this going? And again, this is another one of those like regression in the mean is possible. But what I looked up was, okay, what type of player what how many players have and this is worse than Bane has done so far, like 59% true shooting on 25 usage, because that's, you know, like a large role and you're making a fair amount of shots from it. And I was, and I was like, okay, I genuinely didn't know the answer to the question of how common is that? And there were only about, I think it was seven or eight guards. And the only one who we wouldn't consider a star is Jordan Poole, who last year was a version of an offensive star. He just, you know, has defensive limitations and was on the champions, So he didn't have as much of a role to have. And so like with Bane, i don't know if he's going to be all of this but the idea that he can be efficient and effective as a secondary not only a just like that basic catch and shoot shooter but initiating some actions getting things going i that is really exciting for memphis
1: danny we we got to get you to lean more into these uh just buying into the recency bias it's uh it's way more fun that way and yeah i am all over the desmond bain train i mean we uh at sporting news we had to pick who we thought would be a uh, first-time all-star i went with evan mobley and i my heart wanted to go with desmond bain i wish i had at this point i mean if you watched him last year he was doing a lot of similar things to what he's doing this season but he's just gotten more opportunity this year i i think that the things he's doing are definitely sustainable. I mean, uh, he showed last year that he is capable of doing a lot more with the ball, doing a lot more playmaking, shot creation. He's a true three-level scorer, one of the best three-point shooters. I mean, people know that, but the way that he's able to create a lot of those threes, I mean, he has this nickname Fly-By-King, such a good pump fake, and then he's able to take it in, attack closeouts, because people have to guard him so tightly. And I think he's another guy, just like Shea, that does not get enough credit for how solid of a defender he is. Mm-hmm. Unlike Shea, you look at him, He does not have great tools. I mean, he fell in the draft because he has a crappy wingspan. Shea has an amazing wingspan. That's why uh, his defense is a little bit more visible, I guess. But Bane is just, like, super, super smart. He knows how to play the game. He's always in the right spot. He's a great helper. Great on ball, too, because he's tough and he has his old man strength. So just a player that I love, love to watch
0: including passes, which I think is a good way to evaluate pick-and-roll ball handling. 88 possessions so far for Bain, 1.09 points per possession, which is really good. That's 80th percentile on the league. And as you mentioned, he's been capable defensively, still hitting a lot of threes at a high rate. Like last year, we were all really excited when Bain was shooting eight threes per 36 and making 43% of them. Oh, 9.1 per 36, making 45% of them so far. And he's been fantastic. And I had lamented, and I still do lament, that Memphis didn't use their resources to bring in a player who could be that second or third best guy next to John Morant. And the hope, of course, is that Jaron Jackson can be slotted into one of those. And I still wish they'd brought in that player, but Desmond Bain being better, kind of maybe stepping into one of those roles, makes that more palatable, even though I still wish they'd done it. Plenty more with Stefan No, but first a message from betonline.ag online remains your number one source for all your sports betting for football and basketball this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup information, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. Always your continued source for sports wagering information. BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. We're the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf games and events. So... Head to betonline.ag and use the CLNS50 promo code to receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Again, make sure to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your rewards at BetOnline, where the game starts.
1: Did you uh, get a chance to catch the Grizzlies game last night?
0: That was it was delirious fun yeah I did I did get to watch it um Nate didn't so that's why we didn't talk about it on dunked on but the, I mean so you had a couple of high profile absences Zion didn't play for the for the Pels Bane is dealing with this big toe issue he was out for the Grizz but I mean I, it was, there were a lot of a lot of really kind of interesting subplots including the Pelicans just they look so much better when Jose Alvarado's on the floor and yet for whatever reason it seems like he's capped at 20 or so minutes per game and and it's going to drive me completely bananas by the end of the season.
1: Yeah, they have way too many um, young, talented guys, a very easy team uh, for a consolidation trade here. But uh, yeah, the reason why I was asking you is because, you know, Jared Jackson Jr. played in that game. I was I uh, I watched about half of that game. But from what I saw, I mean, he was showing some pretty good things on defense. Uh, I'm curious what your uh, JJJ impressions were.
0: He definitely looked a little awkward and clunky on offense, but you expect that. Like that, you know, when a player comes back from an injury, especially in some ways when it's an injury that might have kept them off the floor. Like, you're getting your rhythm. Like, there were a couple of really awkward post-ups against Larry Nance Jr., who was a mm-hmm. capable defender. And we know the three-point shot didn't quite have the touch there. was 0 for 7. But defensive timing was pretty good. Getting after it was good. And I, I thought they the refs missed a couple of fouls, but he wasn't in incredibly high foul trouble. So... Really, when I'm evaluating a player on a team that has earned what Memphis has, where it's like, okay, this is more about the playoffs than the regular season, I'm thinking, can he be right by February, March, and April? And yes, absolutely I think he can. So it might take him, you know, a few weeks to get to get the offense in line. And Jaron Jackson is he's not always the most reliable offensive player, even when he's at full strength. So you have that there. But you also saw the way like It was still a game where Memphis didn't force many turnovers. It's one of the through lines of their season that's fascinating me because I hadn't fully pieced together that like two of their best ball hawks are now elsewhere with Melton and Kyle Anderson. But you can get some of those change of momentum, change of possession stuff with a good shot block as well.
1: Sure, yeah. It's interesting that you say um you know the grizzlies need this second creator i think uh dylan brooks from the the half of the game that i saw he's been trying to take that role and uh oh boy (laughs) yeah if people didn't watch the game i mean he had a pretty hilarious fast break it was like a four-on-one fast break with Ja Morant, and he uh, basically somehow threw a lob pass in a fashion where Ja had to block it (laughs) and send the ball out of bounds. There's another time where he threw the ball, like, 90 feet uh, the other direction, uh, trying to throw it to Ja. So those two don't seem to have great chemistry. I I do agree with you that, you know... Talk about the pelicans being a consolidation trade target i mean people have been saying that with memphis forever too so yeah i think uh bane i think bane can be like a number two guy on a championship contender but they probably do still need you know a third guy because jaron jackson jr might not have quite that in him,
0: and he might. But you, you want to, ha- and, and ideally, you want to have like three or four guys that could be the second best player on the team because sure. some are going to work and some aren't. And put yeah, Dylan Brooks is in many ways the center of my frustration because Dylan Brooks, capable basketball player, has has earned. Like he he has been a part of what has made the Grizzlies' success story happen, and it is ex- it is important to acknowledge that. However, he is not a reliable offensive player. He can be really foul, foul heavy defensively, and Brooks can be—he can kind of be a little bit versatile in terms of whether you want him point of attack defender, man, man, man to man on the kind of on a on a more off ball guy or everything else. But I don't think he's like superlative at any of those. He's good, but he's not superlative. And so, if you're thinking about the variety of teams that the Grizzlies can face in in ideally an NBA Finals run. You're you're gonna you're gonna have to deal with a lot of different types of opponents and maybe and and if John ja Morant and no, I believe I personally believe that no team should ask their primary creator to be the lead point of attack defender at this point. I think that's just where the league is going. Is that you just shouldn't? It's too much to ask of that player. Maybe LeBron in like a single playoff series, like what he did on Rose all those years ago, he can do it. But Ja's not great at that. And so if Desmond Bain isn't that person, which I don't think that he is. What, no no shame on Bain. Then what you're asking for in another player on the Grizzlies is somebody who can defend those kinds of actions, whether they're small or large. And that's Zaire Williams has been a lot of fun in that regard. Taylor Jenkins used him well last year, but also ideally that players, you know, can shoot the ball enough that they actually get defended and they're hard to find. They're really, really hard to find.
1: Well, we just talked about one that is not playing enough. (laughs) That's Jose Alvarado. I mean, his point on deck defense is amazing. So, yeah, I think guys like that are really valuable. Actually, uh, James Herbert of CBS Sports had a really good profile in Al- Alvarado. And uh, he talked to some of these other guys that play that similar role, you know, Fred Van Vliet, Alex Caruso. They all have this kind of like uh, respect for each other's games because I think that's something, you know, we're league pass junkies. We're watching a ton of games. So we we noticed that kind of stuff where a player is breaking up some off-ball action that totally blows up what the offense is trying to run. But for... Casual fans, they might not see that and see that, as you said, these guys are really hard to find. And when you do find them, they're extremely valuable.
0: I've also been thinking a lot this year about... So you take somebody like Jose Alvarado and who's just fantastic point of attack defender and I think the uh, the idea of him being a pest and disruptor undervalues like it understates the impact that he can have defensively like the idea generally is that bigs are more impactful defensively than guards but there are certain guards that can really get in there and mess up the flow and so my thought for a long time has been oh it's great to have those guys start and and you certainly can if they're good enough to do everything else because that's when the other team has the best players on the floor if you can just dis- get their offense disjointed a little bit that's great but the other- Other real intense value of a player like that is most teams. The notable exception, and I think Rick Carlisle's really ahead of the curve here. His team, he was you know he was playing the, those Energizer Bunny lines with three guards a lot of times in the second unit. Is there are a number of NBA teams that really have one creator on their second unit? If Jose Alvarado can take that guy away, like he did on the Grizzlies last night, in part because Desmond Bain's unavailable, their offense screeches to a halt. And like on that front, the Pelicans won that game by eleven points. The Grizzlies outscored them in John Morant's 36 minutes. They outscored. They were plus five. So that means they were—the Grizzlies were outscored by 16 points in the 12 minutes that John Morant didn't play, and a big reason why is because they didn't get any good looks.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talk about Alvarado, who's a great defender, but, uh, you know, they also have Dyson Daniels back there, who Mm -hmm. is struggling to get in the rotation. They have Herb Jones, who, of course, like, everybody saw how good his defense was last year in the playoffs. So, yeah— Uh, I think one of those guys kind of has to get moved um, because, yeah, we we were going to talk a little bit about the young guys. I think Dyson Daniels really excites me when I watch him play. He has these amazing tools. He gets a ton of deflections. I mean, the Pelicans are throwing him into the fire, having him guard. The best players: LeBron James, Luka Doncic. Uh, he had to guard. Uh, I, I actually watched him guard uh, Dejounte Murray. He did a pretty good job in that matchup too. So, yeah, they they got to move one of these guys.
0: Did you see? I I, if, I don't know if this was in the part of the game you watched the full court pass that Dyson Daniels threw. I think it was in the fourth quarter of of the game yesterday. I didn't watch the fourth quarter. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. I mean, so he caught the ball and just immediately. Just missled it. I don't know when he saw there were two Pelicans down there, and then eventually I think I can't remember it was one passed it to the other and they got an easy dunk. And Daniels, like there were elements of his four game, because I actually saw the G League Night in person twice last year, um, because they played some games at, at, at Chase Center. And that was an opportunity to see James Wiseman, which who knows when the next time that's gonna be is. But the uh I was really impressed with a lot of the those elements of his game. Like he he was reading things incredibly quickly for a player his age. And we're seeing that applied defensively. His rebounding has been an important part of the story for the Pelicans as well. They've been inconsistent on the glass when Valanciunas has been off the floor, but they can they can go at that in other directions, including using a perimeter player to do some of the heavy lifting. And yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And that's like the weirdest thing about the Pelicans that I'm still grappling with is first of all, they're eight and six, but they have they have this they've played very well overall and they've dealt with a bunch of different absences. But my theory of them is still, they have a lot of really good players, but they don't necessarily fit perfectly. And sometimes that's just, you overwhelm it with talent and like, you know, I wonder about the Zion Brandinger fit. And the answer can be, they're just too damn good. It doesn't matter if they fit perfectly. Like that happens as well. But you brought up a consolidation trade as a possibility. And sometimes it's not even a consolidation trade. It could be an alignment shift where basically you don't necessarily add net talent you add players who make more sense with the talent you already have
1: sure i mean i do think too though that most of the players on this roster are not close to a finished product so perhaps they could grow into a role that does fit better um so there's uh, that to consider too
0: on that front it's again small sample size theater Jose Alvarado 20 of 49 that's 41 percent on threes and I actually saw some really good stuff from Willie Green last night like I don't love Alvarado as a you know that floor general pick and roll creator like he just doesn't create enough advantages but there were a couple really nice plays where they were using him more as a kind of a secondary go and catch guy and Alvarado he's he can get into those spaces well and makes good decisions so basically what you're doing in Utah under Quinn Snyder did this a lot and I mean Utah's actually doing it pretty well under Will Hardy now too is one of the tricks of that and like I love to think of Royce O'Neal as an example here like Royce O'Neal far worse offensively than Jose Alvarado but the go and catch idea is basically you create an advantage somewhere and then you use that advantage to make life easier on the players who can't really do that as reliably themselves and so alvarado i think he's good once the advantage is there and maybe he can get to the point you know two three years down the line he becomes a better operator where he can do that set up the defense and everything else but in the interim you use that and then he gets into the teeth he gets somewhere that he can do something make a pass make a floater or hit that catch and shoot three and it can work well
1: yeah absolutely uh I think that uh, go-and-catch action, also called stampede action, I mean, that's that's yep. a great option for a lot of these guys who are really good decision-makers but don't necessarily have that advantage creation. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of alex caruso on the bulls who like yeah just can't get by anybody but does uh have a good ability to move the ball lonzo too actually when he was on the pelicans and on the bulls he's he's uh, good in that action too
0: someone i want to ask you about you have watched more chicago bulls than basically anybody and we've been talking a lot about young guys we don't need to get into a full macro on on the bulls just yet but i you know we, nate and i didn't scout daylon terry I, I saw him in summer league but what have you thought of him so far this season
1: This rookie class is amazing. I love watching all these rookies. Uh, Dalen hasn't played that much this season, and it's because he does not have a great understanding of NBA defenses yet. Um, In one game that he did play a bunch of minutes reporters asked uh billy donovan after the game you know what did you think of him he scored a couple points you know it looked like he had good results from a box scores uh perspective but billy basically said like yeah he was just out of position all the time mm-hmm. which was uh, kind of a downer but um you can see why the bulls drafted him like he does have great energy he runs the break and transition very well i think that while he's not in great position necessarily all the time he's able to recover very well so you don't really notice that he is um you know causing any sort of defensive breakdowns and then on ball i think he's he's a really good defender too so you know his his, uh, shot is going to be a swing skill haven't really seen enough of him to see what that's going to look like in the nba but um yeah he's just one of like so many promising rookies i feel like every single game i'm tuning in on league pass there's at least one rookie where i'm like wow like this guy is going to be a great player in a couple years
0: Right. And one thing that's been stunning to me, and this you could argue that this started with Herb Jones and Evan Mobley last year, is how many of these players are ready to be contribute. Like there's this adage, which is correct, that very few rookies are positive players. Like whether you end up being a star or not, like that's just the way, it, that's the, the way it works. And so that's why for me, usually the rookie of the year conversation is actually pretty short because there are usually like two or three guys that have been positive players in some Aspect, and who had the biggest role, who had the most to do, who did the best with that. And whether we're, you know, we're talking about Ben Matherin or Paolo Bancaro or, I, I mean, Keegan Murray's had some really nice moments. And we talked about Dyson Daniels, who's contributing a lot. And we thought he was more of a project. And like, I mean, AJ Griffin's had a couple big games too. Like the, I I don't think that's fundamentally changing. I don't, and it's so funny because it's not like these players are super like super experienced when it comes the the, oh these are a bunch of seniors or something like that no it's just like players are players are coming in more ready for whatever reason
1: yeah you didn't even mention uh sohan or walker kessler both playing really well yeah i've uh i live in atlanta now i just moved here a couple months ago so i got a chance to see aj griffin a couple times too you touched on him but he has looked great i mean i saw him uh during the final four at Duke and he looks way way better um, just like creating advantages running him off a lot of staggers letting him get downhill he has a lot more scoring juice than I thought he did uh, back at Duke
0: that Duke team was so weird I mean I watched a fair amount of them because Nate and I did a full scout on Bankero and then I did a like a partial scout on Griffin and then did a kind of a version of a partial scout on Mark Williams and their offense just and th- I, I'm not nailing coach K for this but like their offense just didn't really have like a full or rhyme or reason, and I had this idea, sort of in a way, like, with Zion, though Zion stuff has gone a little differently, of... These guys might all be better than we're thinking. And it's something that a lot of us have adjusted to with Coach Calipari, where mm-hmm. like various different players, we, we thought they were limited. All. Like Carl Anthony Towns, like, didn't he, he wasn't nearly that, like, he showed that his he, let's say this, he spread his wings instantly as soon as he left Kentucky offensively. And that Duke team, like, I had this idea that was just like sitting in the corner of my brain that are all these guys better offensively than we thought they were? And Mark Williams, like, that might be a little bit to ask, but like, I mean, with Bankero, and Bankero's been way better defensively, too, to his immense credit.
1: Yeah, I mean... Bankero, like, when I watched him in warm-ups, he was a really good three-point shooter, and he wasn't really shooting that much. I mean, he he was uh, a much better passer than what we saw at Duke. I mean, you're you're not willing to go there, Danny, but I'll say that, like, yeah, I don't think that Coach K was really using these guys correctly in that uh, last year of his coaching career. Oh, no.
0: Uh, no, Coach K used them incorrectly. I'm not going to say he's, like, a bad coach or anything <laughs> like that. No, no it was it, – and it, it's I, – I blame college coaches a lot less when it's a hard mix to figure out. Like, I mean, it was that that, like that team that had RJ Barrett and Zion who they just didn't have it. And none of their good players, none of their high recruits could actually, you know, shoot the ball like that's a hard that's a hard nut to crack. Especially when all the players are temporary, but it's still it's still a frustration. And I don't want to dwell on him, but you know, got to see more of him this week than I had before. Marjan Beauchamp looks good too. And he's really done well in the stretch of time that they've they've had a couple of guys out, the Bucks have. And so they've needed Beauchamp to step in. And I I, I think it's going to be a little time for him to be like a, a a full force, but again the flashes are really good. Like he had a couple of really nice threes. He p- plays hard on defense, and like I've been so impressed with this rookie class.
1: Yeah, so as have I. I mean, I was just watching this morning uh, the Jazz Knicks game and. I've I've seen a lot of Kessler and uh, he's just one of these guys where I think they're doing this with a lot of rookies like Shaden Sharp is another good example where they're just keeping the role very simple but these guys are so talented at these specific skills that they're asking them to do whether it's you know Kessler protecting the rim and rebounding and just rolling really hard or Shaden Sharp being a total (laughs) athletic freak just letting him bounce in there and shoot threes Um, so I I think it's a a combination it's it's interesting I was wondering why it is that these rookies uh, seem to be so much more NBA ready maybe it's a combination of better skill training um i don't know if it's like a coaching thing or what but you know you brought up that observation i definitely agree with it that this these rookies just seem like they're way way more ready to contribute
0: i think it also might be the way that the game has changed i'm in the process of reading mike preta's books based out and it you know like the the developments over the last 10 to 15 years are in some ways making those like roles a little offensively especially a little bit more accessible and the those it takes time for that to make its way to the lower levels too and especially when we're talking about AAU or like high school or anything like that like because these guys aren't typically in college for very long if they're in college at all we talked about Daniels and Bochamp and a number of others that didn't really go the traditional college route and I think that might be part of it but the bigger stunner for me is defensively where that's been like basically the hallmark is, I mean, I remember I had conversations going back to Festus Azili and... Damian Jones, like when they were young guys on the Warriors, and they talked a lot about how the biggest adjustment from college was defense and how the communication and everything else. And to see some of those players really stand out on that end so young is really impressive. Um, one other player, you know, you brought up the idea before in the Sporting News you guys had first time All Stars. I don't want to I don't want to dwell on him, but I do want to mention that another guy who has dramatically surpassed my expectations so far is Larry Markinen. and this Jazz team has been awesome to watch their uh, half court hoops had a great video about how their offenses worked and Markinen, it's been an offensive and defensive development for him
1: yeah it's funny you bring that up i was actually writing an article about this exact topic this morning i was doing some research And um, obviously, like, I'm really familiar with Mark and I watched every minute he played with the Bulls. And the biggest difference to me as far as offensively is uh, he's a true three level scorer now. I mean, his rookie year under Fred Hoiberg, I think Hoiberg was trying to get him to do that. And then his development took a huge turn downwards uh, after Jim Boylan got in there. It's funny that the guys that Boylan was supposed to develop. I mean, Chris Dunn's not in the league anymore. Wendell Carter, you see he's gotten way, way better ever since he got out of that Bulls atmosphere. Larry's the same way. Boylan just Had him shoot a bunch of threes. Now he's uh he's in like uh I, I looked this up, I think it was the ninety-fifth percentile in mid range shots. So taking way more, making way more. Um and the way the teams guarded him when he was with the Bulls is why he was so ineffective, is they would just throw a guard on him. Um that like totally negated all the things that made him special. So he's able to punish those guys, shoot these uh mid range fadeaways or just take take advantage of mismatches in the post, which he was not able to do consistently. I mean that I think that has been the real turning point in his game.
0: We can shift a little bit from the positive. We have to spend a little bit of time with the negative. You wrote a good piece about a week ago for the Sporting News on Ben Simmons just committing a ridiculous amount of fouls and him, you know, not being ready last year and, you know, ramping back up and why he needed to ramp up when he was hoping to get traded and everything else is a separate question. But Simmons, for whatever reason, has been a significantly worse player on both ends of the floor, but most notably on defense this year than he was at any point previously.
1: I mean, the Nets just gave up 145 to the Kings last night. That was actually probably Simmons' best game of the season as far as offense but again I think that on the defensive side of the floor he was showing some really problematic things um He had zero fouls in that game, but in the previous two games, in only 14 and 24 minutes, he had four fouls. Uh, He's averaging five fouls per 36 minutes, which is just a crazy number for him. He was at three the previous four years of his career. And uh, he just doesn't look right physically. I mean, he's talked about it, so it's no surprise that this is what's going on. But he had to have his knee drained, missed a couple games recently, and the back stuff, of course— um, so he's just like not contesting shots. Like he's not even trying to contest it. He's just watching people go to the basket. He's getting blown by a ton. I mean, I remember uh, a couple years ago Bob Volgaris, when he was still working with the Mavs, he put a Twitter poll out there asking who people thought was the best defender of Luka Doncic, and uh, nobody got the right answer. It was actually Ben Simmons who guarded him the best. And you saw Simmons on Luka this year. Luka made him fall down and like, land on his butt, and Luka was calling him up for switches. I mean, he's targeting Ben Simmons, a completely different player than what he's been in the past. You know, Two years ago, this guy was number two in Defensive Player of the Year voting, and it's just, he's gone from an elite defender to solidly um, average to below average just a just a massive drop off there
0: here's hoping it improves i liked you had two different theories that s- stuck out to me in in the piece one was the time that simmons has been out coincides with some points of emphasis that could be a challenge for him where like the off ball grabbing like that was something that the league has really clamped down on over the last year plus and simmons does th- he did that all the time back when he was health healthy and good and everything else and so that can lead to problems and the other part is just he doesn't look right physically out there, and one of the easy shortcuts is to try to slow the other person down using means that are you know fouls. And Brooklyn, I mean, there, there's this concern about like they they traded you know you they traded for Ben Simmons the the you know in the, the hearted deal, and after this year. 30, 37.9 million for 2324, 40.3. And it, I'm not gonna say it was inconceivable at the time, but knowing what we know now, it would have been significantly better in my eyes for brooklyn if they had just let james harden walk you know like that that was it kind of seems like to some extent that was the threat was like i'll just go to i'll just go to philly and I'll, and you'll get nothing in terms of the long-term feature of the nets i think it would have been easier to build a good team than what they've gotten from simmons so far
1: yeah we got to start calling it the seth curry trade because <laughs> that was that was the best piece they got back <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh I know your I know your timing is tight, uh, but I know there's something else that you want to talk about. You wrote a really fun piece on the game that I was not watching at the time because most of us weren't it was it was I guess airing on stadium but that three on five game where they basically where Alabama got almost their whole team tossed and then a couple guys fouled out Colin Sexton was on that Alabama team and then made a comeback on Minnesota you wrote a really cool oral history of it so I wanted to give you the floor to kind of sell people on it because they should definitely read it
1: yeah, so the five year anniversary of that game is coming up on November 25th. So, in anticipation of that, I reached out to all three of the players that were on the floor. During that three-on-five game, got them to talk about it. Talked to the coach, Avery Johnson, about what his strategy was. I was really curious, like, what do you what do, you do in that kind of situation? Like, are you drawing up plays? Are you just trying to motivate the guys? And so he revealed a little bit of his strategy and his thinking there. And, um yeah, it was cool getting to talk to Colin about that game that put him on the map. And, you know, he acknowledged that... Probably, like, without that game, I don't know if he would have been a lottery pick. A lot of these GMs, you know, when they saw his bad games, they would think back to, you know, this guy, Colin Sexton, he scored 40 points playing 3-on-5. They outscored Minnesota during that 3-on-5 portion, which is just insane to think about. Colin was getting triple-teamed basically every single play. Um, So it's just a fun game. Like you said, not a lot of people watched it because it was on Stadium, which was streaming on Facebook. Also, Alabama was playing auburn and football and some really big football games so not even not even alabama fans were watching this game and which is a shame uh because it was a really special game which is uh what was the impetus to write the story and memorialize it so i hope people give it a read it's it's a fun little look back and um i think it was a a pivotal moment too for alabama's program herb jones was also on that team he got he got thrown out of that game um so yeah some some good names in there you can see um who was it on minnesota minnesota had a player too I, I i'm blanking on who it was He's in the nba now um who was like choking <laughs> breaking a bunch of two-pointers too so that's always fun to look back at as well
0: also a surprising appearance of skittles which i'm not going to spoil for listeners i was I, I was dumbfounded when i saw that and it reminds me that there's a lot that i don't know about the those kind of like moments that happen within a game
1: nba players they eat the same snacks that we do for uh, energy
0: they really, really do. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time. A lot of fun.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Danny. It's always a pleasure uh, chatting with the hardest working person in sports media.
0: Kevin Pelton's not here.
1: <laughs> well, uh, we'll give it a tie to both of you guys.
0: Thanks again to Stefan no for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Sporting News. You can also follow him on Twitter, which you definitely should, at No. StephNo, that's S-T-E-P-H-N-O-H. Love having him on and really enjoyed the conversation getting into part of what is made This first or month-ish of the season so exciting for people like us who like seeing where the game is going, where these players are developing and everything else. So really loved the conversation. You should definitely check out his piece on... The Alabama Minnesota game oral history. You can find that on his on his Twitter. It was really good. I'll, I'll presumably retweet it as well. I, I really enjoyed it and get get some fun anecdotes. And it was just such a bizarre circumstance that I, I love that somebody took the time to write about it. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. Really do appreciate that. And then you can help other people find the show. That can be leaving a rating or review in that podcast player or spreading the word could be social media, could be in person. Hey, you like this specific episode, that can be a big help. And then the most important thing you can do for this show, and honestly, any other that has them, is to check out our sponsors for Real GM Radio. That is betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to tell them that you came from us and get yourself a 50% welcome bonus, which is far more important on your first deposit you can also check out my other work dunked on dunked on prime going strong even stronger now with dan feldman and john hollinger in the fold so you can subscribe to that but then we also still have free podcasts as well you can also check out the nba strategy stream which is nate and i calling a game on league pass you can watch the game and hear us call it get into some of the really fun tactical adjustments had really enjoyed the one with the bucks and the hawks on monday and then we'll be doing another monday this is going to Celtics-Bulls on Monday, 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific. Should be a fun one. And then you can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I did a piece going through each team's salary cap situation, and then I have some other off-season stuff, and then some other kind of in-season takeaways, the teams I've been thinking about most that are in the process. I'm going to be gone most of the weekend, so I don't know how much writing I'm going to be doing, but hopefully they'll come out soonish, so you can check that out at The Athletic. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I don't always reply, but I do always read. That is what is most important to me, and I am very upfront with you about what I do with that. But it does make the show better, and I really do appreciate it. And that is all for now. So, thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.